Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What is the perfect story? Spoiler alert. We don't know. What we do know is that Stranger Things 3 dropped last week, and it's got us itching to revisit our favorite campy, cheesy, creepy movies from that golden age of popular culture, the 1980s. So we're bringing you a very special boomerangerang, a pop debate where we pit your favorite Stranger Things characters against their equivalents in 80s movies. Who will triumph? Who will wither away into the annals of nostalgia? Find out tonight on the Boomerangerang. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth Boomerangerang special. Man, it's been a while since we've done one of these. I am very excited to bring you a brand new gamified boomerangerangified version of our favorite playing around pop culture debate. Today's Boomerangerang is brought to you by Stranger Things Season 3. Not officially. They have not sponsored the show. Oh, no, they have not sponsored the show. But it just came out. We just watched it, Laurel and I. And I must say, I loved it. So warning now, if you haven't watched all of Stranger Things, this Boomerangerang has a good chance of spoiling it. But if you recall, if you've been with the podcast from the beginning, we used to end every episode with a game. And then we realized that was really hard to do fresh and good games each episode. So we decided that we wanted to do specific gamified episodes. And this version, we have two teams. We have Team Stranger Things, which has many of the characters from Stranger Things that we know and love. Then we have Team 80s Movies, in particular, 80s kid fantasy action sci-fi movies. And we are taking Team Stranger Things versus... Team 80s in some surprising and wacky scenarios. I love it. What a wonderful intro. If you are new to the Boomerangerang, as I imagine some people listening to this are, this is something that we love to do every once in a while. Uh, But as you said, Derek, we haven't done one in a little while. And part of the reason for that is that we're actually making these primarily for our Patreon listeners now. So this is a taste. If you're not a Patreon supporter and you want more of this, uh, you can get an extra Boomerangerang every month in addition to all the episodes that we put out throughout the month uh, if you support us there on Patreon. So that's for as little as $5 a month. You can get that bonus boomerangerang where Derek and I go head to head. We uh, pull characters out of the hat and we 
pretty much fight to see who has supremacy in the most random and uh, sometimes hilarious of situations. So they're a lot of fun. Definitely recommend uh, supporting us on Patreon. You can find that at patreon.com slash midnight myth. And uh, usually we have a set of characters in one hat where we each pull a character and then a set of scenarios in the other hat. This one's going to be different where we have chosen what team we're on and we have listed the characters and their battles and then we will pull the scenarios out of the hat. And when I say out of a hat, I have a literal hat. Listen. Yeah, literally there's a piece of paper in a hat. You talked all over my my, my, my paper. Anyway. <laughs> um, without further ado, anything else before we get to the Boomerangarang Stranger Things versus 80s movies? The only other thing I would say here uh, is that obviously we come up with all of this in the moment. So we have to make up some pretty interesting bullshit to try and cover these really random things that we're pulling out of a hat. But we also want to know what you think and what you would argue if you were in the same situation as us. So uh, after this goes live. We're going to publish these as Twitter polls on our Twitter at the midnight myth, where you can vote or tell us what we got wrong. Tell us what we got right. Tell us who you think would be uh, crowned king or queen uh, or whatever in this situation. I mean, I'm going to be doing team eighties movies. So just go ahead and pre-fill all of your Twitter votes for team eighties movies. Cause I have brought my a game to this boomerangarang. This is the older millennial versus younger millennial debate for the ages, isn't it? Yes, this is what yeah. is better. The new nostalgia filled stranger things or the actual classics and these characters that came to inspire new arts, such as, Stranger Things. All right, shall we? Uh, shall we go for it? All right. So Laurel as Team Stranger Things. Her first character is going to be L or Eleven. Yeah. And mine is going to be E T E T Phone Home. The extraterrestrial Elliot. And Laurel, would you like to pick the first scenario? Yes, I would. Now, typically, those who pick the first scenario also will argue first. Are you okay with that in this boomerangarang? Yeah, I think I'm okay with that. Read the scenario. Performing an occult ritual that successfully summons Beelzebub. Oh, wow. Okay. Wow. This is one that I I submitted for consideration here. Uh, So I'm really excited about this. Performing an occult ritual that successfully summons Beelzebub. Uh, He's actually got a devil put aside for me. Um, Beelzebub, as you will recall, is one of the chief demons of hell. Uh, He is sort of a lieutenant to Satan. Uh, And he is a pretty nasty dude. If you're summoning him, it's probably because you want to make some kind of pact. Uh, It's because you are willing to sell your soul because there's something you desire so much that you will trade your soul for it. Uh, Whether that's wisdom or knowledge or love. I, I think it's interesting to imagine Eleven in this situation where she has to perform an occult ritual to summon a demon because L has kind of a complicated relationship to the occult and mysticism and demons. In fact, one of her very first acts in Hawkins was to uh, lose control of her sort of telekinetic and psionic abilities to a point where she ripped a hole in dimensions and unleashed 
a demon, unleashed a demogorgon. So we already know that she has the like raw strength and ability to rip holes in dimensions and pull monsters from an underworld to uh, an overworld. So clearly she's got the resume. She knows how to do it. But why would she do it? I submit that L desperate to understand what it means to be a girl coming of age in the 1980s and soon to be the 1990s, as someone who is coming into her own, who is striking up a friendship with Max, uh, who is getting to understand how the world works and is excited by rebellion and strangeness and weirdness and is excited by uh, things that make her surrogate dad mad, might start to dabble in witchcraft, in Wicca. In fact, in a few years, she might see the movie The Craft when it comes out. She and Max might go and see it in theaters. And wanting to try it, knowing that she has the ability, she might want to go light as a feather, stiff as a board. She might want to take it a step further. She might want to start summoning. And we know if she tries, she shall summon. In E.T. the Extraterrestrial, we're convinced that E.T. has come from space. After all, we have seen the spaceship. E.T. looks like an alien in many ways, but E.T. does have some unusual powers. He can have his finger glow, which can heal or hurt. He can develop a psionic connection to another mortal human being, and based upon what one goes through, the other goes through. He can levitate things with his mind. There's no real rational explanation for why E.T. should have any of these abilities. After all, if he's just a traveler from another galaxy who is innocent and fun and cute, why all of these powers? Are these powers grounded in a science fiction, science-based mythology? No, these powers are not. These powers are inherently mystical. E.T. gets back into his ship and flies away, we think. But what if that ship that looks so much like a little dome with a tip on it doesn't fly to another dimension, but barrels into the earth? And it goes down beneath the realm that we all live into, to the underworld. E.T. wasn't here to survey a planet. Oh, no, 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 no. You think he was here to learn a little bit about the humans before he goes back to his home? Oh, no, 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 no. E.T. helps get a boy drunk. E.T. helps undermine the American government. E.T. helps a kid do what? Cut school. What are these things? Are they... Actions of a good person? Are they actions of a holy person? Or are they righteous and demonic sins wrought behind from a demon who has been summoned from the underworld, masquerading as an extraterrestrial, all just to learn how to what? Consume as much candy as he can, corrupt as many kids as he can so that they can perform the ritual to bring about the rise of Beelzebub on Earth. Okay, so your argument for the extraterrestrial is that he's not actually an extraterrestrial? 
It's a, well, he never calls himself that. He's a subterrestrial. He never calls himself an extraterrestrial. Okay. We never see where he, he comes calls from. He calls himself E.T. But your argument is L sees the craft? Come on now. My turn. Oh, she's absolutely going to see the craft. All right. So the next pairing uh, is hot on the heels of our previous episode, uh, which I hope you've listened to at this point uh, that we did on the never ending story. And of course, we recorded it. And I think released it before we had watched the uh, final episode of Stranger Things. And we felt pretty, pretty good about ourselves for foreseeing that. Uh, if you don't know what we're talking about. They sing the never ending story. They sing the never ending story, the never-ending story theme three. song. And I think yeah. our hearts exploded with joy when that happened. So our pairing is Will Byers, who I will be arguing for, versus Bastian Balthazar Bucks from the never ending story. And the scenario is going to be inventing the internet. What? All right. So Bastion, his head is where all the time people, what's the thing his father wants him to do. He wants his feet on the ground to get his head out of the cloud. What is the internet? If not the digital cloud, but think about this even more. What is Bastion? He's an imaginative, creative, intelligent kid who doesn't like to follow the conventional rules. He's romantic and kind, but he is brave and strong. He learns how to face bullies. He learns that how to cut class. He does all of these exceptional things. His imagination is so powerful, he can build a universe from a grain of sand and see to this universe's longevity. He's a dreamer, everybody. He is somebody that thinks big. He is the kind of person that has the imagination and grit of Steve Jobs. He has the intelligence and poise of a Bill Gates. And he comes from a very wealthy, respected father, just like Al Gore did. <laughs> Bastion is the exact type of person who gets picked on in high school, who likes to read books, who gets great grades, then goes off to college. And after two or three sem semesters of electrical engineering goes, you know what? I've got an idea. It's called DNS servers. We are going to integrate all of these computers into one network. It's going to be kind of like a network of imagination fueling this big collective reality that isn't actually real, but is only real because we all will it to be. Fantasia is the groundwork of the cloud, of the internet, and Bastion will be the obvious obvious choice over the poor, traumatic, stress-suffering will. Wow, I can't believe you ended, you, they ended that great argument with a dig at, his, at Will's traumatic experiences. I felt a little sore because you digged on my E.T. argument. So, oh, you know. okay. Well, I was going to tell you, I thought that argument was great. I actually could see Bastion inventing World of Warcraft, for sure. Uh, you know, role playing, um, I think, is something that would would fit really well with him. But inventing the internet is step one to inventing. Oh yeah, absolutely, MMOs. absolutely. So I I thought that was a great argument. I think the reason that we paired up Will and Bastion is because they share a certain uh, proclivity toward um, 
the imagination, toward the inner world, toward storytelling, toward same creativity, haircuts. same haircuts, uh, similar looking young gentlemen, uh, both very creative individuals who like to draw, who like to invent, who like to tell stories and who like to imagine that their world is more fantastical than it is. I lay this groundwork because I think they have a lot of things in common. I think they both have the opportunity to dream up something as complex and as, uh, you know, sky's the limit as the internet. But I think Will gets a little bit of an edge over Bastion, and that's for one reason. And that's going to tie into one of the most uh, lasting uh, and traumatic events of Will's young life. And that's his kidnapping by the Demogorgon, and subsequent uh, having his mind taken over by the Mind Flayer. What does the Mind Flayer do to Will? The Mind Flayer essentially enters Will's consciousness and becomes a part of him. But when Will becomes a part of the Mind Flayer, Will also becomes connected through a psychic, invisible network to every creature in the Upside Down and every other thing that has any connection to the Mind Flayer, it is the original hive mind. It is an unseen force that binds through seemingly magical uh, properties, but creates something that is so strong it's very difficult to break unless you really, really heat it up. And if you've ever been running too many applications on your computer or had too many tabs open on your browser, you know your laptop gets really, really hot and it does not like that. I think that the Mind Flayer might plant in Will as he is working through how to transform this horrible experience that he had. I think the Mind Flayer might plant the seed in will of a way to overcome that, and that's through creativity. That's how do I turn this horrible thing that happened to me into a positive? And that positive is, what if we had uh, an interconnected web that brings people together instead of tearing me apart from my family, instead of taking me off of my plane, that gives us a new plane to connect on all at once? Like, true story, if Bastion and Will met as like college students, they would build the next tech conglomerate and then they become bitter enemies. Yes, they absolutely would. <laughs> As the success went to one of their heads. It would yeah. be just like the sequel to Never Ending Story. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. All right, so you're up next for the next one. Now, our pairing this time, we are going to have the ranger of the party, Lucas, armed with his slingshot against the karate kid. Yep. I'm Lucas very, Sinclair. very excited for this pairing. Karate Kid versus Lucas. These are two very well-matched characters. And what's the scenario? Oh, God damn it. It's a rap battle. It's a free verse rap in character. May the best rapper win. All right. Lucas versus the Karate Kid in a rap battle. You know I'm coming at you with my wrist rocket and I'm gonna pop your eye out of its socket cause I don't fight no Demogorgon without my mouth organ. And now I wish I had an, a harmonica to be like... <laughs> you, were, you, were on, you were on fire. I loved it. Yeah. Um, yes. Okay, well done. That was it. Well done. That's all I got. 
All right, I'm gonna pop this lid. Watch out, here I come. I'm Karate Kid. Here's my man, Mr. Miyagi. We're gonna get it clean, do what he say. Look at him, he has chopsticks. Is that a fly? Whoops, no, it's gone. Karate Kid, got the Karate Kid song. Gonna chop every day, night, and long. Rapping is hard, and I'm not really good at it because all these bullies are picking on my face. And that's my rap. <laughs> I really thought we were going to hear a little wax off, wax on. I tried. At some point. but I don't know how to rap. <laughs> yeah, but you put that in the hat. Oh, yeah, because it's fun. It is fun. I'm glad it's that happened. And I never want to think about it again. Okay, so next pairing, it's my scenario. So yeah. So pick the scenario. This is, oh, this is a good one. That's a fun one. We have Jim Hopper versus Indiana Jones. Yep. Yeah, this is a good one. The scenario is going to be writing an 80s sitcom where all problems are solved in 30 minutes. Oh, man. (laughs) Jim Hopper versus... Neither of these characters are necessarily going to be good at this. No, this is going to be interesting. This is why the boomerangarang is so interesting. Okay. So Indiana Jones is an action-adventure archaeologist. He's obviously a highly educated man, and he's also very skilled at hand-to-hand combat. And he's also very good at um, killing Nazis. Indiana Jones, we have seen in, let's take the later movies like The Crystal, whatchamacallit. Now, let's assume that didn't happen. Let's just uncannon that. The Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Yeah. Yeah. So we're at the end of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And at this point, he is the pre preeminent archaeologist in the world. He is famous. He is handsome. And you know what else he is? He's fucking tired. He is tired of chasing Nazis around the world, battling them for artifacts. And half the time, he destroys more artifacts than he saves. If you think about it, he's not a very good archaeologist with all the shit he blows up. He was really in it for the adventure, and he is done. So he's there researching artifacts in his comfy, tenured university job, making a good living. And he's gotten a little old. One day, one of these kids come in with these confounded machines where they can have moving pictures on them. Whoever saw something like moving pictures? What happened when you could have books? (laughs) But he likes it. He enjoys watching TV. For the first time ever, he can relax. Now, we all know becoming a PhD means that you must be trained in the English language. You have to write your and publish your research, and it has to be so good that it can survive the scrutiny of peer review. Indiana Jones takes the dedication that he has to ancient languages, ancient objects, the enthusiasm that he has for fighting Nazis, and his love of family. Yes, of family. Even though his relationship with his father is rot, he never really found the woman of his dreams, at least longer than a two-hour movie. He realized that the most important thing you can search for is the love of your family. So what does he do? He writes a script. And he's just like, in his empty house, he goes, man, I wish I had a full house and he writes a script it's still pseudo toxically masculine because it's about three men being men 
but he makes one a little softer as the father. He makes one a little wackier like the Uncle Joey, and one a little sexier like Jesse, because he kind of views Jesse as himself. If only Indy had pursued his musical career as opposed to his archaeological career, he could have been Jesse. He could have had beautiful daughters. And he writes full house. Wow. Indiana Jones writes full house. That is some some revisionist history right there. I like it. I I think you did the best with a, a really weird draw. Yeah, it's a weird draw. Yeah, I <laughs> think you did doubt. your best with a really weird draw. I'm going to say right here before I go into talking about the character that, that I have tonight. Um, if you have not watched season three, serious spoilers are coming. We haven't really seriously spoiled it yet, but serious spoilers are coming after this moment. But I just want to throw a couple of things towards you here when thinking about this scenario, which is writing an 80s sitcom where all problems are solved in 30 minutes. Mornings are for coffee and contemplation. Coffee and contemplation. Laugh track. Imagine the laugh track right there. I told you, keep the door open three inches. Laugh track. Think about the laugh track right here. Think about it. Think about everything Jim Hopper says. I will allow you to date my daughter. I will allow you to late date my daughter. Uh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to jump into your spit. Yeah, I I appreciate it. Thank you. I'm helping you. I shouldn't be, but I am. You are. Think about everything Jim Hopper says. Think about Jim Hopper's general situation here in season three. He's a cop in a small town in Indiana. Very wholesome. But there's some stuff going on under the surface that allows for wacky hijinks. He ends up dressing up in a Russian, like, Soviet military costume. How hilarious is that? He's also raising a daughter with psionic abilities uh, that he can't let out of the house, but she's not really his daughter, but he really cares about who she's dating and what she's doing with her time. It's just a recipe for total shenanigans and hijinks. And it's something that I think someone with an inspired imagination like Jim Hopper and a lot of time on his hands, as you can see, he's constantly drinking in front of the television. He's he's imbibing and he is absorbing everything that's happening on television these days. And he's got a better story to tell. And I think we know from the coda to season three, after uh, the unfortunate seeming death of Jim Hopper, RIP hop, uh, the letter that he has written, uh, that he tried to spell out the heart to art to 11 uh, is discovered. And she reads it in his voice and Wow, that's a moving letter. That is a moving letter that succinctly and emotionally wraps up the major themes of the entire series. Uh, Says, you know, I'm afraid of change, but here's the thing. Sometimes you have to change and you have to move on and you have to grow, but it can still hurt. And you can look back and feel that hurt sometimes. What does that sound like to you? To me, that sounds like a heart-to-heart at the end of a 30-minute episode where maybe the dad and daughter have been working through uh, a really complicated issue. Maybe the daughter got a bad grade, or maybe she uh, has a friend who experimented with drugs and she wasn't sure what to do, and she was feeling peer pressure. And he said, you know what? I've learned something today. 
sometimes you gotta change, you gotta grow up, you gotta move on, but it's okay to look back and miss the good old days. I think Jim Hopper would write a hell of an 80s sitcom, and I think every issue would be solved in 30 minutes or less. 23 with commercials. He's a substance abuse washed out cop. She is a a Russian asset. Psychologically tortured psionic orphan from an evil government organization. Together, they live in a hut. (laughs) (laughs) In the woods. And what's their favorite food? Eggos. All right, moving right along, the next pairing. Oh, it's your turn to pick. I almost picked. Yes. So we have Nancy. Yep. Everyone knows her. Nancy Wheeler. Versus Sarah from The Labyrinth. Yes. And what is the scenario? It's a long one. Uh, Opening up a small five-and-dime retail store and building it into a monopolistic retail superpower which ends small-town businesses and exploits all their workers. All right. Wow. Does it sound like this, any companies out there that happened it, in the 80s? It does. Whoa, oh, it really? It definitely does. Wow. Uh, and also sounds like some of the themes of uh, early Stranger Things season three. Yes. Starcourt Mall. That's what inspired me. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so I guess I have to start here with Nancy Wheeler. Uh, this doesn't seem on the outset like uh, Nancy's absolute, like, perfect match of a scenario. She is, she's a great character. She is kind. She is intelligent. She is studious. She uh, cares deeply about what people think of her and cares deeply about, uh, you know, her own self-esteem and integrity. Uh, She has dear friends and she feels deep love uh, and has a complicated yet uh, caring relationship with people in her family, especially her mother and brother. I love Nancy. I think Nancy can stand up to anything. We've seen her stand up to monsters. We've seen her shoot a rifle. We have seen her, I mean, she's a, she's a sharpshooter. And we have seen her hunting monsters. We have seen her fighting monsters. Uh, and we have seen her struggling with inner demons as well. I think she's an extraordinarily strong character on this show. When I think about what Nancy would do with her career. She's obviously tried to gain a foothold in in journalism. She's a great writer. It's important to her to be able to express herself and to be able to make a name for herself in Hawkins. Uh, Early in season three, we see that she is an intern uh, at, at the Hawkins newspaper, and she is deeply unsatisfied having to bow to a bunch of smug, smarmy men who are constantly sexually harassing her or calling her Nancy Drew or making her go and get their hamburgers uh, fixed because there's no mustard, so on and so forth. She doesn't like being put down like that. She knows that she is better than that. And I think Nancy's inner sense of self is what will guide her towards this scenario here. I think Nancy will never be satisfied working for a bunch of men. And so it's natural that Nancy would want to run her own business. Nancy might want to become her own boss. So I could absolutely see her opening a small business in Hawkins uh, to compete with the great gigantic retail conglomerates like Starcourt Mall to infuse a little bit more of that small town goodness that she sees in Hawkins 
And she'll begin all of this with the best of intentions. But here's the thing. Nancy knows she's better. Nancy knows that she is stronger than most small business owners. Nancy's better with money. Nancy's better with people. Nancy is smarter than most people. And I think it wouldn't be long before her business started to grow. And suddenly she's taking over an entire city block. And suddenly she is employing, you know, half the people that she went to high school with. And she feels really good about that. She wants to make sure that she can get Steve a job. She wants to make sure that Robin always has a job with her. And so she grows and she grows and she grows. And Nancy, who will never be satisfied with someone else at the top when she knows she is better and stronger, sooner or later, she's going to be Starcourt Mall. Sarah is an amazing character from the labyrinth. She undoes the evil plans of the magician Jareth, the king of the goblins, and saves her brother Toby from certain doom. We all know the story and we all love it. And it ends with her hanging out with her goblin friends. But there is a major structural problem after the fall of Jareth, the goblin king. There are all of these goblins and none of them have jobs. None of you, some of you may know, most of you probably don't know, goblins are not the brightest stereotypically. They're not the best stereotypically at just about anything other than necessarily mayhem and fucking off. And Sarah's got all of these goblins hanging out with her doing mayhem and fucking off. And she is at the end of her rope. Similar to Nancy, Sarah is very bright and very creative and very aspirational. So eventually... She takes whatever gold that she has left at the center of the labyrinth, she converts it into hard currency, and she puts a down payment on a little store. And a little store that she employs her little goblins. Her little goblins go to work, and once the goblins have a purpose, suddenly she realizes an advantage, just-in-time inventory. Because my goblins will work harder for less I can undercut all of the prices of my competitors as long as I never have too much inventory. I have just the right amount of inventory, which is what propelled Walmart to become the amazing conglomerate that it is today. Just in time inventory treating humans like goblins. They're pretty much the same thing. Now, Sarah doesn't really feel bad about this because after all, they're goblins. They're goblins. They're not people. Just 30 minutes before in the movie, they were trying to kill her. But then once all the goblins are at work, now that she has several successful Walton 5 and 10s, she needs to start hiring people. And she grows. And just like Nancy, men have no power over her. And because she is empowered herself, through the actions of defeating the Goblin King, she is equally suited to build this massive retail empire. We never ask ourselves this fundamental question. Why does the Goblin King love Sarah? Because he sees her inner ruthlessness. He sees that she is headstrong and ruthless, and that when she is determined, she will do anything just like him. He sees a kindred spirit that he is obsessed with. 
Once this kindred spirit to the Goblin King employs the few hundred goblins at her small mini retail conglomerate, next thing you know, she will not stop until there is a Walmart, a Goblin Mart, pardon me, in every town, everywhere, and everyone must shop there. I love that. I actually really love that. I was like, yeah, the ruthlessness. She's also got some muscle. So if anybody wants to stand up to her, she's got, what's his name, Ludo? Bluto. Yeah. So she's, uh, she's protected. All right. So next up, I get to pick this one. We have Steve versus Marty McFly. Yeah. We are close to the end. I'm very yes, excited are. for the last one. Here is the scenario. This is Steve versus Marty McFly. Steve the Hare Harrington versus Marty McFly. Back to the future. Getting the Infinity Gauntlet from Thanos and undoing the snap. Um, I'm really worried about another scenario that's in there. <laughs> oh, did you do the same thing? <laughs> no. All right. So here we have Marty McFly. I'm going to put this up here. I'm going to spoil the fuck out of both Avengers Infinity War and Avengers Endgame. So if you haven't seen those yet, spoiler wall up. I will spoil it. But what are you doing? Go see these movies. Right. Come on. Yeah. No, no, no sympathy. How does the snap get undone? What is it that the Avengers realize they need to do to undo the snap? It's a time heist. Once they fail to get the gauntlet from Thanos the first time around... They need to travel in time and go back to the future with the stones to then undo the snap. Yeah, it's a time heist. Is there any other character on this list better suited to this job than the one that comes into the scenario already a time traveler, already versed in the complications of time travel, understands that you could create multiple spinoff universes through time travel, understands the continuity of that, has a fucking time machine that he can operate in. They're doing all of this. Like, what are the like crux of Endgame? It's like, how can we do time travel? Here comes a DeLorean. Hey, guys, half the universe is gone. I hear you're the Avengers. Want to travel in time and undo this so it doesn't happen? Boom. Marty McFly. So I am at a disadvantage because you had Marty McFly, um, so I'm stalling. But I would like to point out one thing about Marty McFly that you said, which is that he has a time machine. And my rebuttal to that is that Doc has a time machine. Marty doesn't have his own time machine. So without Doc Brown... Okay, okay, okay. Let's, let's, I, I don't mean to stop you. I want to hear why Steve would do a better job then so, Marty McFly. Here's here's what I'm going to say. Steve the Hair Harrington has amazing hair. Really quite amazing hair. I'm working on it. I'm working it out as I'm talking. But you can just concede right now. No, I'm not going to. I was thinking about it and now I have renewed resolve because you know why? Because we know a lot of things about Steve, and we have learned a lot about his, him as we have watched him change and grow throughout this series. And he started out as a confident, cocky, popular kid, this popular jock at school, 
And over the last couple of seasons, we have seen that part of him fade away. We've seen him lose the part of his identity where he was the king of Hawkins High, where he was the best basketball player, where he, you know, had any shred of self-esteem left. And now what is he doing? He's working at Scoops Ahoy. He wears a sailor costume and tries to scam on girls while serving them uh, the USS Butterscotch. He has lost it. And so to fill out that part of his identity that he feels like he has lost, he needs something new. He needs a pursuit. He needs to engage uh, you know, his intellect and his intrepid uh, you know, adventure skills. And that comes in the form of Dustin and Robin and Erica, his new adventure party. When these four get together, they undertake a crazy plot to undermine the Soviets. They plummet in a Soviet elevator down to the bowels of the earth where they have to try and disable a friggin' portal to another dimension and they end up ingesting Russian drugs. Like it's a crazy trip that they go through. And then once they get back, what's the first thing that they do as they're trying to escape from the Russians? They watch Back to the Future. In this formative experience that happens to Steve, as he's trying to remake himself, as he's on this new journey of self-discovery, he watches Back to the Future in the theaters. With his new adventure party of Erica, a capitalist, who is a a genius at age 10, she's kind of Tony Stark. Dustin, also incredibly intelligent, but able to create uh, incredible contraptions that can speak across long distances. It's probably not long before he figures out time travel too, right? He's Ant-Man or he's the Hulk. Robin, who has an inner moral core and who becomes his most trusted friend. It's Captain America. He's putting together a new Avengers who have the grit, who have the know-how, who have the, uh, the emotional and moral standing to invent the techniques proper to pull off a time heist, but also to undo the snap because it's the right thing to do. All right, let's move on. Last, second to last, we have Joyce versus Lydia. Now, Lydia, you may not recognize the name, but that is the daughter played by Winona Ryder in the movie Beetlejuice. Yep. We have Winona Ryder versus Winona Ryder. It is Winonable. <laughs> yes. It so is Winona Ball. The teenage version versus the mom version at what scenario? Directing a new music video for Madonna. What? All right. All Let's right, just all call right, this a right. tie and move on. I know. Both Winona our characters Ball. win this. All right. So we're going to start with Joyce Byers. Can I just say that's the most perfect scenario for both of these characters? Isn't it great? I love it. Anyway, so, sorry to interrupt. Oh man, Joyce Byers, what an amazing character, right? She is one of the fiercest Gryffindors, I think, in the show. Someone who will do literally anything for her kids or for someone else's kids or anybody that she loves. If you are in her inner circle, she will go to the upside down for you. 
you know that she is, you know, she is in your corner. She's also a person who has had to uh, go through some more economic hardships than most of the other, you know, people in her circle. I'm thinking especially compared to the wheelers. Uh, She's someone who's had to get creative when it comes to feeding her kids or, you know, keeping them entertained. She helped Will build Castle Byers, which is a, a beautiful testament to her love for her son, but also, you know, explains uh, some of the deep well of creativity that she has inside her. One of the first things that we see Joyce doing in season one of Stranger Things is doing her impression of a witch for Will that really entertains him. So she's got access to some sort of performative qualities here. She also goes through some shit during the series of the show including having to communicate with her missing son across dimensional boundaries through lights and electricity. And she creates one of the most iconic images associated with Stranger Things, which is the Christmas lights uh, throughout the house and the sort of Morse code or the, uh, the, the alphabet code that she associates with those Christmas lights. It's kind of a magical and haunting image that might form a really interesting backdrop for a music video. See, if that was in the back of a Madonna song, I'd be like, oh yeah, the Madonna video with the Christmas lights. It's immediately recognizable. It's immediately unsettling and yet also alluring. It's things like this that uh, make me think that Joyce would have the sort of creative stamina and creative um, momentum to keep up with someone like Madonna who is always changing. I also want to throw out again those uh, Soviet military costumes that she and Hopper change into. Just imagine Madonna in one of those singing in like in the tunnel. I think Joyce's experiences will give her these sort of uh, touchstones to be like, all right, Madonna, we're going for a sort of like Cold War paranoia vibe, but you're going to be in a military outfit and you're going to be singing with this kind of light on you. And then we'll cut to, you know, the alphabet and the Christmas lights. Really cool, really edgy, very Madonna. How does Lydia discover that her house is haunted in Beetlejuice? How does she do that? I will tell you in case you don't remember. She's a photographer. She is a photographer. Yeah. What else is she? When she encounters the ghosts and can see them when all others can't, she says she can do this because, quote, I myself am strange and unusual. So we have a young woman, beautiful, talented, intelligent, odd, and gifted at photography. We have a young woman who has proof positive that there are spirits that intercede into this world and that there is life after death. And that this is not to be understood under the conventional standard Judeo-Christian rhetoric that most of us have been taught since our day of birth to believe. In fact, it's stranger and more unusual than we could have ever thought or ever believe. This would lend one to a career in the creative arts in the darker, stranger, and more unusual creative arts. And maybe she struggles a little bit until she meets someone else similar to her 
a little stranger, a little more unusual, a little edgier. Someone else who thinks that these standard Judeo-Christian ideologies and versions of art and creativity aren't necessarily good. Someone who is a Madonna. Now, Madonna had several successful hits in the 80s, but she had one that really did, in particular the music video, really did cause ripple waves. And that's like a prayer. And that is a song that turns the traditional Judeo-Christian values about the universe on its head, in particular in its visual iconography with Madonna dancing in front of crosses on fire. It takes a visionary. It takes a person who has seen and pierced the veil between the land of the living and the dead to understand that sometimes when the crosses are on fire, you just got to dance just like a prayer. No one can see you there. This is a direct experience that Lydia has lived through in the movie Beetlejuice. Her entire journey from Beetlejuice, from almost being forced into a marriage with a disgusting ghost to finally learning to, you know, you got to get good grades to understanding that there is a blend between the outside world of, of counterculture and a little bit of understanding popular culture is okay. A blend that Madonna herself dare say invented edgy, but conformist redefining the paradigms of music while conforming to other conventions, knowing what boundaries you can break and when you can't and which boundaries will send ripple waves of shock that will also be profitable and which boundaries you should respect. These are the very lessons of Lydia. She is going to be an amazing artist and creative professional. And Madonna is the right superstar for them to partner to make the video like a prayer. I can't believe you did so much better than me at the Madonna question. I grew up in the 80s. Yeah, you sure did. I absolutely have that advantage. All right. We have one final matchup, and I know what the scenario is. Good, because you wrote it. And, so the uh, characters are? The characters are the Demogorgon versus the Xenomorph from Alien. At collecting infinity stones. So this is the only problem uh, with us coming up with these independently and surprising each other is that sometimes we get a little bit of repetition. The Xenomorph from Aliens. It's a very different scenario than the one that you proposed. Yes. Mine was specifically undoing the snap by getting the gauntlet. This is just traveling the cosmos and collecting the stones. Honestly, this is a very easy no brainer argument. Um, The Xenomorph was born, bred, and lives in space. The xenomorph has figured out ways through implanting eggs into interstellar space-traveling humans to get from planet to planet to planet. We see in Aliens 2 that the queen xenomorph has established a sense of strategy and intelligence, that there is some focus and some ability to coordinate amongst the other xenomorphs. That's just not just a mindless monster. Why are they traveling through space at all? Why are they out there? Well, yes, they are hungry, and yes, they are trying to uh, pass on their offspring, and yes, they use human humans as the hosts. 
But if you were to consume the galaxy with xenomorphs, eventually you will come to a place like Nidavellir and you'll consume the dwarves and maybe there'll be a gauntlet there. Eventually you'll go to Xandar and you might find a power stone. Slowly over time, as the xenomorph takes star system after star system, planet after planet in the galaxy, these concentrated inklets will come into their possession. Now, I don't think the xenomorphs have the capabilities to harness the powers of these stones, nor do I think the xenomorphs would do anything constructive, even if they could harness the power of these stones. But the scenario is collecting the stones, and they would have the ability to blanket the galaxy and collect these stones. Perchance they'd destroy themselves with them. Maybe they could harness the power for a brief time, but undoubtedly the interstellar space traveling aliens are easily the more odds out favorite to collect pieces of rock out there in different corners of the galaxy. I think that's great. I think that's absolutely great. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the MCU for just a moment as, as we get into this argument here, because uh, it took a while to get to Infinity War, right? It took, took 10 years for Thanos to begin embarking on his journey to collect the Infinity Stones, uh, to even get two of them. It took 10 years for him to get to the start of Infinity War, where he's collecting his second Infinity Stone, and he's about to collect the rest. He collects the rest of them over the course of one movie. Why is that? Why does he accelerate so quickly after he's only got one of them, grabs another one, and then suddenly he's able to pick them up in a matter of hours? There's one reason for that. He gets the Space Stone. What does the Space Stone do? It gives you the opportunity to teleport anywhere in the universe. Suddenly, he has a tool where he can close his fist and a portal opens behind him and he can walk out into the fields of Wakanda after leaving uh, you know, the, the refugee ship of Asgardians. Or he can show up in nowhere. Or he can go to Nidavellir. He can do whatever he wants because space no longer matters. He can just fold it like a piece of paper. What can the Demogorgon already do? He can tear holes in the fabric of space at will. He has the ability to jump in between the, the upside down and the world that we know just because he smells blood or just because he feels fear just because he knows that something that he desires is there. You take away that obstacle of space and you have a creature who can gather the infinity stones in a matter of hours. I rest my case. Okay, fair enough. Well, guys, Midnight Myth listeners, let us know. Tell me how much better I did than Laurel. Boo. (laughs) And until next time... Be kind. Be kind.